as those. This morning, what I've chosen, I've chosen to do is I, I am involved in counseling. I've been involved in pastoral ministry for years. We were involved in training pastors and missionaries and biblical counseling for years when I was pastoring. And then as my life is beginning to slow down just a little bit, I don't know what slowing down means, but at least it's good to say I'm semi-retired. I still am trying to figure out what that is, okay? But anyway, we're busy. I, I am working with people and working with people who are being trained to counsel individuals who are going through struggles. Um, maybe my world is a little tainted because I do live in that world. It's kind of the world that my wife and I uh, find ourselves often in trying to help people walk through particular struggles in their life. But what I'm seeing is that individuals more and more in our culture are losing hope. Have you noticed that? It's like it doesn't take much for a person to reach a point where they're saying, what's the use, you know? I mean, where is this going? Where is life leading me? Whatever. And so I've chosen this morning a very familiar passage. It's almost like John 3.16, perhaps maybe not quite as familiar as John 3.16, but I would wager that most of you have heard this before. But I want to share it with you just to reiterate the promise that's here. Hebrews chapter 13, you have the outline for in front of you. So if all of a sudden I deviate from this, you at least have some notes you can take home with you, okay? We may or may not stick with him. Uh, chapter 13, verse 5, last part of verse 5, and then verse 6. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, or say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I will not fear. What can man do to me? So I've titled this A Comforting Promise. I subtitle my messages, so my subtitles would be something like A Cure for Discontentment. Or perhaps maybe what to think about when your mind is thinking about anything but what it ought to be thinking about. Or where to anchor your life. Okay. Now, you understand that when you're reading a text or a promise like this, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man can do. He's talking in a context. This is in the middle of a paragraph. It's in the middle of a section. It's in the middle of a discussion. So it's important to understand the context to carry the full weight of what it is he's trying to say here. And why is he saying it? So the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a book that is a letter, but it's a letter based on a sermon. At least that's what it appears to be. For most scholars, when they look at the book of Hebrews, they would say, yes, indeed, it's a letter, but it's more like a sermon. So it's a sermon letter. It's written to, John MacArthur suggests that the book of Hebrews is written to three groups of people or at least there are three people involved, three groups of people involved in this group that it's sent to. 
And he would describe these groups as being, first of all, those individuals, all of them with Jewish backgrounds, you can see that from the, from the writing in the book of Hebrews, it has much to say about those who are from Jewish backgrounds. And so these are Christians who have been Jews, converted to Christ, and now are struggling. They're struggling not because of their own personal um, their own personal uh, uh, commitment to Christ as much as it is that people around them have disowned them. When you came to Christ, probably your family was excited about it. There may have been people who frowned on you and thought you a little bit weird, you know. Their poor Bill, he's got some kind of thing going on. Perhaps they, they talked to you in those tones or you caught that, that kind. But can you imagine coming to faith in Christ? And when your family found out that you came to faith in Christ, they literally disowned you? Well, your parents would literally turn their back on you and say, you are no longer my son. They were disinherited. Do you know what that does to income? So here are these Christians, and now they're struggling because, you know, you come to faith and you're excited about your new life in Christ, and all of a sudden, it's like life is not easier at all. It has become intensely more difficult. It's intensely more difficult because of the persecution that's going on. And so they lost their jobs, some of them, um, some of them were persecuted physically. Some of them at this particular time were caught and beaten. Uh, the, the, the historical descriptions sometimes are very grotesque, um, catching people who are believers and, and beating them with their fists so much that their internal organs were damaged to a point where over days they would slowly die. That's not a prospect to look forward to. That was beginning, it was beginning to take place when the letter to the Hebrews was delivered to this group. The first group, the first group are believers, but they're struggling. They're struggling. In fact is, they should have been mature enough to be able to stand under the pressure, but the writer of the book of Hebrews says, you know what? Chapter 5, verse 12, for this for by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. Their faith had been shaken. They were believers long enough they should have known better, but they didn't. And so they're struggling intensely. MacArthur describes the second group as being those from Jewish backgrounds who intellectually understood that Jesus was the Christ, he was the Messiah, that indeed they were sinners and that Christ was the Savior, but they have never committed themselves to him. And perhaps they've never committed themselves to faith in him because of what they saw. Maybe fearful of persecution, fearful of being rejected, perhaps maybe fearful of the changes they believe they would have to make in their own life 
if they openly in, embraced Christ. And then there was the third group that MacArthur mentions, and he mentions the group of those who were not intellectually convinced at all that Jesus is the Christ. They did not believe or nor accept nor reason in their own thinking that Jesus was anything more than some kind of prophet. And so they are, they are these Jewish unbelievers that were there. So we have this group of Christians who have come to faith in Christ, but now they're experiencing these hardships. And then we have the second group who are intellectually, intellectually convinced, but they've never really committed. And the writer of the book of Hebrews calls them to be committed. Give your life to Christ. And then thirdly is this group who are not convinced at all that Jesus is the Christ. Well, in, our, in, our, in the context of uh, the promise that I've read to you, the group that is in mind here is the first group. So our context for our promise, he himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That promise is basically worded to these Christians who are going through very difficult times. Life is full of trials. You and I face trials, perhaps maybe of a different sort. It's, it's not like we're living in that first century and perhaps maybe persecution comes in the form that, that, that it was experienced then. I've, I've been a, a believer from the time that I was four or five years old, and through my whole Christian experience, I've only had one time that it came close to persecution. And that was when I was with another gentleman, and we were knocking on doors, just inviting people to Christ, and, and as well as inviting them to church, and we were just trying to get acquainted. Uh, you know, in those days, it was quite common to do that. And, and so as we're standing on the porch, the gentleman looked at us, and he said, get off of my porch. That was about as close to persecution as I've ever come. I don't know, maybe you've experienced something more traumatic than that, but that's about the extent of it. But when it comes to trials, when it comes to pressured circumstances that begin to press my life and begin to challenge my faith, I can say, oh my, oh my. There was that time when our three-month-old was diagnosed with a Wilms tumor. Do you think that didn't challenge our faith? Going through that experience? There were times when you're raising children, you'll understand what I'm saying, when you have children and you're not sure exactly where they're going to come down because they've jumped in the air, right? And you're not quite sure how this thing is going to turn out. You think that doesn't challenge your faith? Yeah, I think it does. You ever had those sicknesses that come when you take the test? Can you go through the diagnostic procedures and all the punctures and, and all the bloodletting and everything else that goes involved with trying to figure out what's going on? And the doctor just scratches his head and said, I don't know. I don't know. And the most encouraging thing, as I heard during that period of time in my life, was from a specialist. And he looked at me and he said, I don't, I don't know what's going on in your body. I don't know. There's something going on, but I don't know what it is. But he said, if it were something really sinister, you'd be dead by now. <laughs> so I lived through that experience, but what a challenge of faith. 
What a challenge of faith. And as I grow more mature, as I grow more mature, elderly, okay, just a polite way of saying it, I realize that I don't like change. And yet this is a time in my life in which change has become a normal part. My body has decided to rebel against me. I can't eat the things I used to eat. Any of you in that? Don't volunteer your response. But yeah, you've been there. What I'm saying is that each of us, each of us at times have these trials and pressures in our life, though they're not like the first century believers, but they weigh heavy. And sometimes they just sap the energy out of you. And in sapping the energy out of you, you can easily reach a point where you become discontent and can easily turn over into what's the use? It's hopeless. It's hopeless. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You can live several weeks without food, several days without water, and several minutes without error, but you can't live but a few seconds without hope. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Hope keeps us going. Okay, we got to get to our text. Uh, the book of Hebrews, when it begins, as he begins the introduction, he has this series of statements, verses 1 through 5 is his introduction. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God to man. That's his theme. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things through whom he has also made the worlds. It was through Jesus the worlds were created, who being the brightness of the glory and the express image of the person, Jesus Christ is the express image of God himself, upholding all things by the word of his power. Everything holds together by the power, by, by the power of Christ, when he by himself had purged our sin, Jesus Christ purged our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the right hand of God, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That's his introduction. That's the way he starts. Jesus Christ is superior. He is the, he is the express image of God himself. Keep your eyes on him. And then in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through chapter 10, he is presenting Christ as the ultimate, the superior Christ. So we don't have time to go through all of that, but it's Christ, the superior revelation of God to, to mankind. Jesus Christ, superior to the Old Testament uh, sacrifices. Jesus Christ, superior to, and you'll see that all the way through the first 10 chapters. Then in chapter 11 and chapter 12, what he does is he gives us practical implications. How does this look out? If Jesus Christ is superior, this is the way it looks in life. And then in chapter 13, he concludes. He's finally bringing his sermon letter to a close. And so he makes 12 guidelines. He lists 12 guidelines the first five are mentioned in verses 1 through 6. And then the next seven 
are mentioned in 7 through 17, and those have to do with the church's relationship to their pastor. And so it would be exciting sometimes when Josh is away to invite me back, and I'll preach on those, okay? But this morning, I'm going to to stick with those first six verses. So he's bringing his sermon to a close. He's got this audience in mind. Are you with me? This audience in mind, this audience is filled with many different individuals. Many of them are struggling because life has grown very weary for them. It's very difficult for them. It's not like they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's like life is seemingly, it's a dark world, and it's getting darker for them. They don't see hope being that they're going to have some kind of new job or new source of income or people are going to welcome them. It's getting worse. Their circumstances are getting worse. He then concludes, Verses 18 and 19 with a prayer, then the benediction in verse 20 and 21. He updates us on Timothy, and then he concludes with his grace prayer. So back to our immediate context, verses 1 through 6. Let's look at it, okay? Um, and I just wanted you to feel a little bit of this, this group that the writer is talking to. So if you're here this morning, and it's not like there's maybe not been a great catastrophic event, but there may have been. And it's very difficult for you. It's difficult because the pressures are there. The pressures may be a relationship that's disappointing. It may be in parenting. It may be in health matters. It may be in your job vocationally. It may be, but you're here and you understand that there are those days, there are those days in which it's hard to hang on to this hope that we ought to have in Christ. And so the writer is going to give us this final admonition, five things that he says. Let brotherly love continue is the first. Now, I don't often do this. I, I, we have great English translations, and there's nothing wrong with the translation that you, are, you have on your lap. And mine simply reads, mine's New King James, simply, simply reads, let brotherly love continue. But sometimes when you're translating from one language to another, you don't always catch the tone or the emphasis. You know, in our English language, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy language for other people to learn, you know? I mean, you can say yes, or you can say yes with a tone that actually means no, right? You're so smart, right? And you can tone that thing to mean you're really smart, I really appreciate you, and you can tone it to mean the opposite. Well, what I'm just suggesting to you that sometimes the English translation doesn't always catch the flavor, and here is one place in, in this passage in which there's a slight, a slight, it's, it's, you can't catch it in the English, but it's more than let brotherly love continue sounds to me like when I hear it in the English is it's brotherly love is happening, just let it go on, right? Just kind of, it's, it's happening already, just continue it. 
That's not exactly the tone that's here in the original. What it is, is it's liberally love continue with an emphasis that almost makes it an imperative so that you could translate this without being, without being um, it's not the words literally, but it's the significance of it is brotherly love must continue. Do you hear? It must continue. Now, why would I make a, a, a distinction like that? I'm just suggesting to you that, you know, when life gets difficult, when life gets hard, one of the things that happens is we stop loving our families and brothers and sisters, particularly in Christ. You know that when you get discouraged, probably one of the last places you want to go is back to church. You ever notice that? Strange as it is, it's, it's seemingly our self-focus and so on. And so the writer is saying, not only let something that's natural continue, he's saying, listen, intentionally choose to love your brother. When life gets hard for you, intentionally love other people around you. Love your brother and sister. It's easy to neglect family. Secondly, he says, he says, uh, do not forget to entertain strangers. Now, in the culture there, we have to kind of, kind of think a little bit here how it might look in our culture. Uh, we don't entertain strangers in the same manner in which they entertain strangers. You understand that. So, to make a long story short, I would just simply say is don't forget to be hospitable. Don't forget to make people welcome in your presence. Now again, he's talking to people who are discouraged. And I think there's a natural tendency sometimes when we get discouraged and we begin to, to lose hope that we don't always make people feel comfortable in our presence. You know, when I, when I go to Walmart, <clears throat> I wonder if the clerk at Walmart knows what mood I'm in. You know? I wonder, I wonder if the person who's, who's trying to take my order at McDonald's or Wendy's or wherever... I wonder if my lack of hospitality, being in my own world and being under pressure, that I don't, I don't often make people feel comfortable in my presence. And so what the writer is just saying is, listen, don't forget to be hospitable. Don't forget to be hospitable. Third, remember those, remember the prisoners as in ch if chained with them. And again, culturally, this is different. This is different. Back in those days, if you were a prisoner, you starved unless somebody brought you food because there wasn't a government agency that fed you. Wow. Well, how, how would that look today? I think, I think the intention of the writer, if we were to find some application today, would simply be, remember that there are people who are suffering. There are people who are suffering out there. Sometimes when we're under pressure, it's hard for us to see and understand that there are other people who are hurting too. You see, because we become self-focused. That there are other people. Remember those who are in chains as if you're in chains with them, you know. Be empathetic to those who are suffering around you. It's hard sometimes when we're going through discouraging times to be sensitive to other hurting people. And then he says marriage is honorable. It's another thing in the original language which is kind of interesting, and that is in the, in the Greek language, 
the words that are at the first of the sentence are the words that are seeking to be emphasized. So if you know the word order in the original, even if you don't understand all the implications of it, you would understand that what he says at the beginning is what he's trying to emphasize. And here, marriage is in fact what he says at the first of the sentence. Marriage is honorable. Respect marriage. It's honorable. So the, even the emphasis here is honor marriage. Again, would you think with me that sometimes isn't it true that when we are personally going through rough times and the weight of the world seems to be weighing heavy on us, there's a tendency to disrespect marriage? I think sometimes we live in a culture that is um, Is it, it's easy to find images and temptations that are out there. It's easy to find them. And so sometimes when people are discouraged, what happens is they look for bright spots. You know, you look for some glimmer of hope, and so sometimes people run to hobbies to try to find relief from the pressures of their life and escape from these difficulties, and sometimes they'll run to drugs or they'll run to, you know, all kinds of sources, and sometimes they'll run to immoral sources as well. Respect marriage. Respect marriage. It may be that when I'm discouraged, one of the primary things that I need to remember is I need to continue to show brotherly love to other people. I, I need to be hospitable. I need to intentionally choose to recognize that there are other people who are suffering around me, and I need to honor and respect the role that God has given me in my marriage. And then he gives us this fifth guideline that's here. Let your conduct be without covetousness. You see, without covetousness. Without, it's, it's not wrong to, to desire to have things. That's not what the writer is suggesting here. Covetousness is not that, you know what, I would like to have enough money to be able to whatever, whatever, whatever. That may or may not be sinful in and of itself. Um, but sometimes there is this love of money, and that's what he's after. And you don't have to have money to get caught into that trap, you know. And, and the trap being, of course, is that, is that money becomes this bright spot in our life when the world gets heavy around us. And so when the pressures are on, we become covetous, you know. Boy, I wish I had their car, you know. I wish I had their job, you know. I wish I had their money. If I only had that husband or that wife, life would be a lot easier for me. And, and we can become covetous, do you see? It's easy for us to be uh, looking in other directions. And again, it's not wrong to want things to be better, but we can, certainly, we can certainly get that out of whack, you know, 
And instead of wanting to honor Christ, what we seek to do is find some relief. It's kind of in a sense like when the pressures are on, sometimes instead of running to the Savior and finding our joy and finding our ultimate peace and satisfaction in pursuing Him, we try to find our satisfaction in job. We try to find our satisfaction in family. We try to find our satisfaction in money. We try to find our satisfaction in all of these various areas over here instead of ultimately in Christ. So again, it may be a relationship that's not what you thought it to be. And, and in life, and, and you may be saying, you know what, I, I don't know that I signed up for this. I don't know that that's what I was expecting was going to happen. When, when I entered into this relationship or I, I got married or uh, whatever the, you know, the, the, it might be an employee-employer relationship. I'm, I'm not sure I signed up for this, you know. But the idea here is are you content with where God has you? Are you content? It's not like I don't want to have better things, but am I content? Am I content, you see? Now that's the context, he's saying that, and then as the bottom punchline to that particular thought, he says, for he himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now again, in the translation, it's hard to catch the emphasis that's here. This one you can catch in the English. For he himself. Now who said it? God himself said it, you know. Yeah, well, Bill said, yeah, okay, Bill said it. You know, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. But here, it's not Bill saying it or anybody else. It's he himself has said. So it's the emphasis, it's the emphatic that's there. Now, now, again, he's trying to help them to have an anchor and a promise and a comfort in the midst of it and he's saying, you be intentional in loving other people. Don't forget to be hospitable. Remember there are other people who are suffering around you. Respect your marriage and don't be covetous. You be content with the things that you have because God himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now, Again, English class, Greek class, just so you'll catch this one, which is not obvious in the English either. And that is, if I, in the English, if I use a double negative, if I say, I will not, not leave you, what am I really saying? I will not, not leave you. I'll leave you. The double negative becomes a positive. Scratch your head. <laughs> what? I will not, not leave you. But in the Greek language, when a word is repeated, it's emphasis, it's emphatic. Do you remember? Truly, truly, I say unto you, Jesus said. Or verily, verily, I say unto you. You remember? It's not because he stuttered. It's because he is making a point. Listen to me. 
Truly, truly, I'm saying this. It's emphatic. When the angels around the throne are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you see? Do you hear it? It's not because they can't remember more lyrics in the song. It's because of emphasis. It's holy, holy. And I can't yell out enough to emphasize it enough. Do you follow me? I mean, when you see it repeated three times as holy, that means God is holy. It's just emphatic. It's a way of emphasizing it. You don't always catch it in the English, but it's there. What in the world is in this verse, Bill? Here's something interesting. There are five negatives. Five negatives in the passage. It is, it is, I will never leave you, but there are two negatives back to back that are translated by never. Again, I'm saying in the English, you can't say, I will not not leave you. But you can say, I will not ever leave you, but the ever is not a negative. So it's hard to catch it in the translation. But what I'm saying to you, what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying emphatically is that God himself has said, I will never, emphatically, fist on the pulpit. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. Triple negative on that last Interesting. I will never forsake you. I will never fail you. I'll never walk away from you. I'll never abandon you. I'll never leave you when you're hopeless or helpless. I will never fail you. That's what he's emphasizing. I won't. I remember one time seeing a mother with a child that was upset, and the child being upset, the mom got down right on his level, and he's like, four or five years old, she got right down his level, and she got his little cheeks, and she caught his attention, and she said, look at me, look at me, look at me, right? Your mom's been there, right? Look at me. I am your mother. No one is going to hurt you, you know? Well, it's kind of like that, even though, obviously, you know, a mom's promise that no one's ever going to hurt you doesn't last a great length of time. But nonetheless, you know, I'll never abandon you. I'll never give up on you and, and so on. And, and when I think about that, God is saying, I'll never let you down. I'll never leave you behind. I'll, there'll never be a step in your life that you will walk without me right there by your side. The power of the resurrected Christ is right there with you. Then why do I feel abandoned at times? Why do I feel like I'm all alone? Why do I feel like, at times, God, you're somewhere distant, but you're not here? Where are you? Why does the psalmist in Psalm 73, as he, as he looks out on life, and as he evaluates life, and he's saying, I know God is good to Israel, but as for me, but as for me, I look out, and I see unbelieving people a lot better off than I am. 
I mean, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more riches than they could imagine. There are no pains in their death. They don't seem to have any trial. It seems like every morning I wake up, God, you've taken me to the woodshed. I, I don't understand where you're at and what's going on. I feel like God has somehow turned his back on me. Why is he punishing me? You ever been there? Well, the Psalms are so prevalent with the laments that, yes, you've been there. If you've been a Christian very long, there have been those moments, maybe days, maybe weeks, maybe months, in which you've experienced that. Does Jesus care? Does he really care? The Bible's full of, of examples, and I've got to hurry here a little bit, but, but the Bible's full of examples. Do you remember the life of Joseph? Joseph in the Old Testament. Here he is, he's crossways with his brothers. He's crossways with his brothers, and his brothers choose to throw him in a pit rather than killing him. Well, they were talking about killing him. And then they decided maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. Oh, yeah, finally. He's hearing all of this. In fact, is in chapter 42, verse 21, it's the brothers reflecting back on it, and they're saying when they're finally there in, pre in the presence of the Egyptians, the Joseph and so on, they're saying that what's happening to them is because when Joseph was in the pit and he was pleading with them for his life, they didn't pay any attention to him. So what I'm suggesting to you, you for a moment be Joseph in the pit. Your brothers are talking about killing you and you're begging for your life and they're having lunch. That's how concerned they were. Would you feel like God was present? In that moment, would you say, thank you, Lord, for being present with me? He's pleading for his life. You know, gets out of the pit, sold down into Egypt. You know the story. There he is, he's faithful. God is with him, the text says. And there he is thrown in prison for something that he didn't do while he's in prison. He tries to help two individuals, and one of them remembers, or one of them, uh, he tells the story, one of them goes back and is restored, the other one is executed, the butler and the baker. And then when the gentleman gets out of prison, he forgets Joseph. You know what I'm saying is in those moments, do you suppose that Joseph... Joseph just understood entirely that there wasn't a moment that he ever struggled with the reality, you know, God is present. However, there was this main anchor that kept him going. And in chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 20, it says, but you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God had something good in mind, though you intentionally chose to harm me. I don't know how it all fits together. I don't know how it all fits together. I'm just suggesting this, that if, that if in your life you feel like God has abandoned you, your emotionally driven thinking is lying to you because he hasn't. You see? Because God himself has given you a promise and he's not going back on his promise. But it feels like it. I know it feels like it. I know it feels like it. I know it feels like sometimes he's, he's nowhere and that living the Christian life doesn't pay. Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Where's the, you know, I understand that. I get it. I get it. But it doesn't mean that God isn't at work in your life. 
and so he is. So that we may boldly say, the text says, so that we may boldly say, so that we may have confidence in saying, the Lord is my helper. You know how I'm gonna get through this trial? Because the Lord is my helper. He is present with me. I am going to claim that promise that God is present with me, no matter what the trial is, no matter what the difficulty is, God is here. Not because I sense he is here, not because I can reason it out, not because I feel his presence, not because I see the evidence of his presence, but because I know he is because of the promise that he has given to me. So the implications would be quickly this. One, for those of you who may be here and you've never come to faith in Christ, I just want to remind you that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us are sinners. We're sinners on two counts. One is, I never had one lesson in lying or cheating or back-talking. That came natural to me. I don't know if it came natural to you or not. It came natural to me. My parents had to teach me not to do those things because it was natural for me to go my own way and to be self-focused, the damage of sin in my life. Secondly, I'm a sinner because I knew that there were times in my life when what I was doing was wrong and I went ahead and did it anyway. And there were times in my life when I knew I should be doing something and I didn't do it. I've chosen to sin. I'm a sinner on both counts. And the need of a savior, because of that sin, I'm estranged from God. God has provided through Christ provision for forgiveness. And that's faith in him. That's faith in him. I encourage you to come to trust him. To trust him as the savior. If you're here and you're intellectually, you know Christ as the Savior. But for some reason, you've never committed to him. You never by faith received him. I want to challenge you and encourage you this morning to commit your life to him in faith, trusting him. Don't be afraid of the changes that you might need to make in your life. Don't be afraid of the circumstances you might endure because indeed he himself has promised you, right? We just went through it. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to leave you by the side of the road, abandoned when you're the weakest. He's not going to give up on you. No matter where you've been and what sin you've committed, he's not going to give up on you. That's the kind of savior I want. Thirdly, those of you who are Christians and, and, and you know what I'm saying is true, but the struggle is real right now in your life. And you're saying, wow, I think he's been eavesdropping in my mind because, because this speaks directly to my circumstance and oh, if people only knew how much I really wanted just to quit. And I want to encourage you this morning and that is, listen, the Lord is your helper He's not given up on you. You need to trust him. Trust him in the midst of that. Trust him. And if you're here and, and you're saying, Brother Bill, I preach it, man, I tell you what, I, I, I have come to realize in my life that the Lord is my helper and I'm confident in that. I'm saying, keep it up. Just keep it up. 